You are now listening to the Add 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast. Wait, the answer was add 10 gallons? Add 10 gallons. My first thought was we got to put active children. Yeah, great. Yeah. <laughs> Trucks on, on, the on the way. On the way. Yeah, okay. I've got two observations, uh, neither of which are really educated or well thought out. <laughs> which are like most of my observations are. There aren't a lot of problems on a job site that can't be solved with a sack full of biscuits. Today's episode of the Add 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast is brought to you by Actigel 208. Actigel 208 is a high-performance additive for the concrete industry that is greatly beneficial to the producer. It enables them to increase the percentage of manufactured sand by up to 100% and completely replace all the natural sand in the mix. In areas where natural sand is scarce, inconsistent, and expensive, this provides a huge benefit to any ready-mix company out there. Benefits of manufactured sand and concrete include consistent air content, improved compaction, and increased density. Now in the past, the downside of using manufactured sands was that they were hard to pump, hard to place, and hard to finish. Well, Actigel 208 solves all those issues. By improving suspension, stability, and the quality of the cement paste in the mix, Actigel overcomes the old issues with manufactured sand and leaves them behind. Let Actigel 208 improve the quality of your mix while saving money on every yard you produce. For more information, visit us at actigel.com. That's A-C-T-I-G-E-L dot com. Welcome in, ladies and gentlemen, to the Add 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast. We appreciate you being with us. As always, I am Josh, joined by the boys, Paul and Joey. What's going on, Paul? What's going on, brother man? Excited to be here. Super excited that this guest came on today, recorded. It's going to be absolutely fire. Absolutely. Yeah, we're going to get into everything that is economic-based, and uh, hopefully he can answer all the questions you may have about today's economy uh, in general and also as it pertains to the concrete construction industry. But, uh, yeah, Dr. Anaban Basu has joined us, and it's a good one. But uh, before we get to him, we'll do our regular deal here. Uh, Joey, what's going on with you, man? Good, man. I hate I actually missed Dr. Basu's interview while you guys were in the studio having fun doing podcast stuff, I was getting these gains, uh, dumping Actigel on about 50-something concrete trucks. So you're welcome, I guess. You actually look like you lost some weight. I almost said that before we started recording. Well, I did that day for sure because I I showed up at the job site at 6 a.m. I got me a little something to eat at 5.30 at the gas station, the only gas station I came across, and there was nothing else open on the way to the job site. And then I didn't get to eat lunch till like three something that afternoon. So I fasted, I guess you could call it. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we worked our tails off, but everything went good. Job site was uh, was a lot of fun. Met some cool guys, and Active Jail showed out. So it was a good day. That's a good day, man. Yeah, we appreciate you doing the Lord's work for us while we're up here in studio, in our air-conditioned studio, uh, you know, talking shop with one of the world's or certainly one of the country's uh, most well-renowned economists. Uh, You know, you're out there chucking buckets of active gel, so we certainly (laughs) appreciate you. But yeah, before we get into the nitty-gritty here, guys, we are a day removed from the Super Bowl, so we should be recording a podcast on what uh, should be a national holiday. It's not yet, but maybe maybe one day, the Monday after the Super Bowl, will will be a holiday, as it should be. But uh, 
it's not. But we'd be remiss, uh, being SEC football fans, we would be remiss if uh, we didn't at least acknowledge the fact that Georgia sports fans, particularly Atlanta sports fans, um, they've had to take a bunch on the chin over the last uh, decade or so. A lot of losses, and uh, Paul can attest to some of those losses, um, some in heartbreaking fashion, as any Falcons fan would say. Uh, but this year they're getting it back in uh, in waves here. You got the Braves, you got the Georgia Bulldogs, and now you got Matt Stafford, their their boy from Georgia, as a Super Bowl winning quarterback. Um, and in this particular game, you really couldn't root against either quarterback. But uh, if anyone's going to win, it should be the guy that devoted 13 years of his life at Detroit. That dude deserves it more than anybody. <laughs> <laughs> it just means that the uh, the Georgia fans are going to be more insufferable for another year. <laughs> As if they needed something else Golly, to talk about, man. Y'all ain't got to deal with them like I do. I mean, we we bleed into Georgia, you know, up here, down here in Tennessee, and it's yeah, it's gonna be rough. Even all through baseball season, uh, it's yeah. I you know I like your idea for the national holiday the day after the Super Bowl because last year when we started this podcast, one of the things we talked about was creating a, another sports national holiday uh, when we were on uh, it was opening weekend of baseball season. You know, it's our opinion here that the opening weekend of baseball season should be a Friday, Saturday, Sunday event, like a spectacular. All 30 teams play, you know, they all are Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and it's a national holiday that Friday, so people can go enjoy an afternoon game on Friday, a night game on Saturday, another afternoon game on Sunday. Let's make it a thing. Let's make it a holiday. Let's celebrate, you know, the nation's pastime, but... Uh, this uh, the day after the Super Bowl. That's a good one. Too. Well, the scheduling of like the national championship for college, it's on a Monday night. You know, the vast vast majority of good college football games are played. You know, Saturday. Why couldn't we have the national championship on Saturday? And as far as the Super Bowl goes, why would you just move that to Saturday too? Because I don't know. It just makes no sense to me to have all these major events on work and school nights. Yeah, I don't know either, man. My the only guy I can guess is the TV executives uh, have looked at the numbers. You know, there's people out there trying to make money on this <laughs> thing. So it has to be that they've crunched the numbers and said that Sunday night's better than Saturday night. Now, the college game is a different thing. They're actually competing with the NFL playoffs around mm-hmm. that time or the end of the NFL season at that time. So if, uh, if they try to have it on a Sunday, they're competing directly with the NFL. And if, it is, if it's NFL playoff time, then the playoffs are also on yeah. Saturday. So they would be competing with that too. I just can't remember if it if it goes that far back or not. Yeah. But yeah, so it's that's a money thing. That's why they have it on a Monday night. Yeah. Yeah. Well, either way, it's above my pay grade. I am all in on Paul's idea of making opening opening weekend for the Major League Baseball uh, a weekend event spanning all three days. That's much better than opening day being at two o'clock in the afternoon on a Tuesday. I mean, I'm all about taking off work to go down to Pickles there in Baltimore, <laughs> but. Uh, <laughs> I can't imagine I'm in the majority. The majority there. No, it's it's. Yeah, I, I'm not even. A, I love baseball, and y'all know this. I love going to the games, but uh, I would totally be down to have opening weekend. And I, I, it always opens the beginning of April. Is that right? Am I right in that? Yeah. So yeah, the first weekend of April. Why not have like official opening opening weekend for baseball? Well, he's only saying that so he can go turkey hunting on a Friday without having to take off. I mean, don't act, don't act like you know me. <laughs> <laughs> Can't bring those ulterior motives into here. Hey, let's get into some concrete stuff. We've got some big news coming out of World of Concrete. So we didn't get to go this year because uh, we were busy making, making concrete in the lab. We had a big project running. 
and we just couldn't get away. Um, we heard it was a great time. We saw a lot of great photos from people that we know and people we don't know. That just they're posting some really phenomenal stuff. But here's here's the numbers that came out. Set a record for the concrete industry management program auction. The CIM auction came in with 1.74 million dollars in donations. Not only a record number of of money donations, they had a record number of items that were put up. I don't know if you guys actually looked at that list. There was some awesome, <laughs> awesome stuff on there. Um, if I didn't have so many other things paid for in my life, I, I was really considering, especially some of those golf trips, man. They were just phenomenal. But let me let me tell you the one big thing that came out of there. Okay, so 1.74 million was like the total uh, pot that was collected. Almost a third of that came from one item. $540,000 donation to the program in exchange for a Kenworth T880 with an Alliance concrete pump attached to it. Ooh. Went for $540,000. Man. That's big time there. That's a big time item. That's big time. Big time. It looked it looked nice too. <laughs> <laughs> but we never get to see them all nice and shiny. You know, yeah. you know we see a, a boom pump where uh, you know, I, I don't can't remember uh, how many meters this one was, but when we see them they're all you know, covered in concrete and yeah. half broken down. Everybody's mad at them, but this one was looking sharp. So, congratulations to the winner of that, and thank you for supporting the CIM program. Wow, that's incredible. A little out of my pay grade. <laughs> I might could have got a cooler. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when the when the boom pump costs more than our house, you know, Ugh. sorry, <laughs> we're not going to be able to buy the boom pump. No, certainly happy for everybody there in the CIM program. That's incredible how that program has grown and how it's supported but uh, let me give you some bad news about about some things that might not be so well supported uh, and that is uh, up in Seattle there's a concrete mixer truck and plant employee strike first launched by the Teamsters Local 174 and this was in November started with like 30 35 workers and now it has grown to over 300 workers uh, that affects six different concrete companies out there in the Seattle market. Uh, workers are seeking higher wages and better health care benefits for recently retired members. For this particular uh, instance, the local officials are pushing for the Teamsters and the concrete companies to return to the negotiating table, uh, citing a threat of more than 15,000 layoffs across several industries because, like I had mentioned, these strikes started in November. Here we are in February, uh, so you're you're working on three full months now. So you've gone way past uh, just the the concrete truck drivers and the plant workers. Now uh, you're delaying job sites, so you are affecting you know steel workers, roofers, plumbers, electricians, so on and so forth. And um, you know people need to get back to work while these these negotiations can take place while these guys go back to work and that's kind of what they're working on now you know both local officials and and the business owners you know they respect the right to bargain but you know you can bargain and keep these job sites moving at the same time and i think that's what they're trying to trying to move towards as they're seeing you know like the west side seattle bridge was supposed to be done mid-february now it's not going to be uh, there's other jobs in the city like the there's a waterfront uh, program uh, there's a, a ship canal waterway project that's separate from that. All these projects are getting pushed back further and further and further. They're in the process of, um, you know, like I said, going back to the negotiating table. But then you have the King County RFQ, 
which is being used as a bargaining chip from King County executives, and they announced a contract on February 9th that basically gives about $30 million worth of concrete work to these companies saying, hey, you know, come back to the, come back to the negotiating table, bring your guys back to work, and oh, by the way, if you're able to do that, here's like $30 million worth of business that w- will largely be given to you over the span of the next couple of years. You know, this is what you're missing out on. Uh, come back and talk to us, get you guys working again so we don't hold things up worse than they already are. So there's some political grandstanding going on here. There's some, you know, some favors being done, which I don't, I mean, I understand the necessity for that RFQ as it pertains to the negotiating table. I just, I just hate giving lollipops to crying children. You know what I mean? I think it sets the wrong precedent. Um, but you guys can discuss. I put that out there on the table, and I'm not going to go into the depth of my disdain towards unions on this particular podcast. And uh, Well, let me interject. You know, one of the sad rhetorical conundrums we've entered into in this country is that we've tried to label pro-union as pro-worker and anti-union as anti-worker and pro-business. Like, there has to be a winner and a loser. But there doesn't have to be winners and losers. We could all be winners. And... So for us, we've grown up in businesses that are not union. And when you work for a healthy company and you put in more effort, you bring in more sales and you drive the profits of that company higher and then you go to that company and say, hey, I think we need to be more fairly compensated. Sometimes that's a, a, an actual wage or salary. And sometimes it's, it's benefits and other things that just aren't being uh, done yet. But as our roles and things evolve, we come and we ask those things. And, and we work in a healthy company, in a healthy environment. So when those things come up, they're well-received and we begin negotiating about those things with upper management. But we don't stop working. Like, we couldn't imagine that. But we work in the service business. Like, we have customers that we must service. And if we don't service them, then we lose all that business and we're going to lose our jobs. <laughs> so, but it's it's a situation where all parties can win and all parties can benefit through hard work. So it's tough for us here to sit back and say, "Man, these guys are not working because they want stuff. Why don't you go out there and earn it?" And, you know, and then talk about what you need and what you want and you know, it's tough cuz we can see the other side of it. We can see the other side where maybe they have been complaining for years and haven't gotten anything, and they and this you know this is their last play. You know, has it gotten to that point? You know, man, I, I don't know. I'm not there to say because I'm not there with that union. I do hope that it get resolved very quickly so that we don't have you know a major impact on these other industries that you outlined. Yeah, I wonder too if um, the things going out there going on out there in Seattle would trigger something similar in some of these other big union cities. Like we see, you know, Chicago, New Jersey, you know, the Mid-Atlantic and the the Northeast, that's big union country. And I wonder if they would catch word of what's going on out there and start their own strikes or whatever. Maybe in uh, not the uh, not the best of intentions, but just to see if they could get more money or just to see what they could get out of, you know, the companies just by going on protests. Because they know that they know it's everybody's having a hard time finding work, you know, if. Uh, maybe in their mind they have the power to go on strike and get more 
for the same amount of work that they're doing. I don't know. Yeah, this this ties in with our guest today really, really well because Dr. Basu goes goes into depths about, you know, the labor market, the labor shortage that we have within the construction industry and and how that is extrapolated across all, you know, all industries, not just the construction industry. So there's a couple things going on here. One, uh, and this is my opinion, uh, this is my opinion talking here, not a uh, not a synopsis of what Dr. Basu says to us in the in the interview, but in my opinion, I don't think employees have ever been more powerful than they are now with mm-hmm. within their workplace with their employers. Um, unions are feared for a number of different reasons, but this being the number one reason is is how well they can orchestrate a shutdown. They're certainly feared for that reason. Um, but then your non-union companies, it's, it's tough for them in this, in this day and age. It's tough for them in their environment. But I'm, I truly believe that if you create a good culture within your company and you do right by your employees, like Paul had just described, I feel like now you can create a, a large, sustainable, powerful company if you create a, a, an atmosphere where people want to come to work. I mean, because people are looking for a job every single day. Last couple of job sites I was on with Paul, first thing out of their mouth, hey, y'all hiring? You know what I mean? So say you, know, so say you do yeah. say you do have 10,000 or 15,000 houses you need to build. Like you're behind by that many houses and you need to hire, you know, 20 to 200 workers. I don't know. This is a, just off the top of my head. But, you know, let's say you have five, 10 employees that truly love working there and they got five or 10 buddies apiece that work for a company where they're not happy. That now is a time for thriving companies that provide a good environment for their employees to become even even stronger so you're going to see a, a a separation between the the good and the not so good i think and and i don't think you need unions to do that is my point here yeah. no well you you just made the it was very well said for the anti-union case that if a company is not giving you what you want then there's probably a company out there, especially right now, that would love your skills and services, and they will pay you for what you're doing, and they will compensate you, and hopefully you can find one that has a culture that matches your own style. If it, I would just hope that that's the last straw, right? That, right. that that's not, like, like the three of us, right? You know, we, we saw a need, we saw some needs in our department six months ago, and started, or may, maybe longer than that. You know, the first thing we did was start we started compiling data saying, hey, we think we're going to need this need, but let's track it. And then as we tracked it, we said, yeah, they, we absolutely need this need. And then we bring it up. And it's like, and then it's a process. And, and through that whole process, we worked harder and harder and harder to show our value. And there were never threats made on any side. And so it was, you know, this, that's the way it should be, is that you get rewarded for hard work. And if these guys aren't being rewarded for that hard work, then they should go somewhere that can reward them. And like you said, Josh, how many sites have we been on where they need people? Yeah. And so if you're telling me there's a handful of guys that are like, hey, I got all the skills you need. I just want to be respected and, you know, compensated properly and fairly. Well, well that's a, that's another thing, too. By all means, I mean, if, if you're a skilled tradesman or if you're willing to work, even if you're not skilled, if you're willing to work hard, the world is your oyster right now. But at the same time, don't be naive. Be realistic. And there's so many people out there that want to get paid more than what they're worth. And I understand right now, right now you're in an environment where you can get as much as you can. And I, I urge you to do so. Get whatever you can get. But don't don't be asking for 20% more than what you're worth or 50% more than what you're worth. If you want to get paid more money, become a better employee. 
learn a skill. Half the time, if you learn a skill that's applicable to your trade, your employer will pay for it, or at least partly, part, pay for it partly because they get a write-off and, and benefits for, for that education process as well. So it works both ways. If you're an employer, by all means, take care of your people. But if you want to be regarded as a better employee, make sure you're a better employee before you start making those demands. It works both ways, and you have a lot of people right now asking for stuff they're not, they're not owed. Well, you said there's two things there I, I want to comment on. Is like one, what if, what if these union guys? I'm trying to give them a little bit of a break here. So to play devil's advocate, what if they're seeing a bunch of new hires come on, and those new hires are getting paid an exorbitant amount of money because just the supply and demand of people, and they're like, hey, wait a minute, this guy doesn't even know what he's doing. He's making more money than me. I've been here ten years. Okay, that's one thing that could be happening. Um, I'm not going to speak to the health insurance after you retire thing. I, 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 just, I just don't get it. I just don't know enough, so I'm not going to say anything. But you mentioned the training. Like Companies are willing to put money into people. One of the greatest uh, little memes I ever saw years and years ago is, you know, it was, it was just in text. And uh, the CFO said, well, what happens if we put all this money into training this person and then they leave? And the CEO said, well, what if we don't and they stay? <laughs> right. Yeah. And it was like, absolutely, man. And, you know, I give the company we work for a lot of credit for stepping up uh, when they need to step up, for challenging us. Because sometimes we think we need something, and they're like, no, there's a better way uh, to do that. And so we, we find better way, more economical routes. And my favorite part about all this is that as we continue to grow and expand, we're going to be hiring folks. And the fact that I that we're gonna get to go to people that we know and be like, dude, you really need to jump over here. Here's what you get when you come over here. I mean, I just, I'm freaking thrilled to be able to you know put that kind of stuff out into the marketplace. Yeah, and just uh, for me to try to be kind of devil's advocate too, I guess, is it made me think of uh, a couple of my favorite sayings that I've learned in the past uh, couple of years. The first one was from a negotiating course. Uh, I think we all took it. And I, the, one of the first things that that instructor said was that you don't get what you deserve, you get what you negotiate. And I tell that to everybody. And, and regardless uh, of what the situation is, you know, if you can negotiate uh, for higher pay or just whatever, then that's good on you as far as I'm concerned. Uh, because you just you did something and you made somebody pony up and you got more for it. And so in that aspect, uh, yeah, I'm, in, I'm always in favor of somebody negotiating for more. Uh, and then the other thing, I don't know if I heard this or if I kind of just made it up, but, uh, the saying was that, you know, something's only it's worth as much as somebody's willing to pay for it. So if you're, you know, we talk about how high housing costs are and how high vehicles are and how high everything is, well, it's worth it to somebody because they're willing to pay for it. So it's when situations like that come up, I just think of those two things. And I'm not, like I said, I'm not really agreeing or disagreeing with either side, but that's it just makes me think about that. Like people are negotiating and getting more pay. I mean, I can't, I can't really argue with that. I don't care what, what the situation is. Yeah, I mean, depending on how you want to look at it, technically you're negotiating all the time, whether it's directly or through actions or, so on and so forth. So yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm right with you there. Get what you can get by all means, get what you can get. But at the same time, you know, be a realistic and realize that that employer that is, 
employing you, you know, giving you a livable wage, you you still owe something to that employer as well. Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, they don't just owe you a job and you got a job and you show up on time. I and mean, that's that's a start. But after that, you know, where you go from there should be on you. And, you know, you're negotiating all the time. And maybe that's what kind of kind of set me off about this situation up there in Seattle. I mean, you have you have a thriving market up there that is in desperate need of the services that you provide. There's no reason you can't negotiate and work at the same time. Mm-hmm. You don't have to shut down the city's construction projects just because. And just because you go to the table asking for something and want to negotiate doesn't mean you have the position mm-hmm. necessary to negotiate. Right. You know, just because you ask for something doesn't mean that company has to give it to you and that's happened to us several times but it's always been better for us at least where first like dang i really think i need this <laughs> and, they're, and they're like no no young padawan you just, you know you just haven't experienced all these things here let me show you another way to do this that doesn't cost all that money or it doesn't require those tools or all that specialization and it's like oh okay wow sorry yeah. <laughs> didn't know thanks for thanks for enlightening me and then we run off in that direction and on the flip side of things it's up to the companies to provide something you know worth negotiating for or something like that you know they have a lot to negotiate with too yeah I, th- I think we ran out on that uh, on that topic for as as much as we're <laughs> as much as we're allowed to I mean honestly if we wanted to do a deep dive into the into the labor force for construction and how unions play a part in that. I mean, I would I would love to do that on a different episode. And I would love to have a representative from either the Teamsters or any other labor union. I would love to talk to them. Absolutely love to ask them a million questions. But that's a, that's a podcast for a different day. Uh, this podcast, however, we asked a million questions to an economist, as, as stated earlier, Dr. Anurban Basu. He is well known. He's got a spot on NPR uh, radio. He is also the CEO of Sage Policy Group. He's an economist, and they call him an economist with a personality. Because uh, not all economists have a personality, but Dr. Basu definitely does. He gives some of some of the best live live speeches uh, that that we've ever heard. He's very unique in the sense that he themes all of his uh, public public talks and uh, is super engaging, speaks really well, and he's super knowledgeable as well. Um, He's been twice recognized as Maryland's top 50 most influential people. Um, He's also been on the list for 20 most powerful business leaders for the state of Maryland as well, as he is a a mid-Atlantic guy like myself. Between the years of 2014 and 2021, he was also the chairman of the Maryland Economic Development Commission put together by Larry Hogan. and then he also teaches global strategy at Johns Hopkins University. Um, he earned his bachelor's in science at Georgetown. He earned his master's in public policy from Harvard, uh, master's of economics at the University of Maryland at College Park, the real University of Maryland, because <laughs> there's only like a million different subgroups or, or, so, or sub, sub uh, universities from Maryland. But should, should have asked him what it was like going from lowly Harvard to that, you know, esteemed university in College Park. Yeah, he, he probably would tell you the parties were way better at Maryland. <laughs> <laughs> and the football team was just a little better. Basketball team was a lot better. The football team was just marginally better. Yeah. Boss is great. He probably would say that. 
Yeah, yeah. But he did he did get his PhD in uh, economics at UMBC, which that's why I had to differentiate between the real Maryland and the not real Maryland. Uh, <laughs> but but nonetheless, as as what I was trying to say is he is he is well learned, well taught, speaks very well as you will see, and his opinion is just regarded so highly across uh, business and political arenas. Uh, we certainly had a, a great time talking with him. Uh, asked him a lot of questions, and uh, he spoke to his audience very well because this is a guy that could talk completely over our head. However, we asked him very simple questions, and he gave us very thoughtful answers that were tailored to the people asking the questions. So, um, you know, <laughs> for our listeners, if you wanted more integral economic questions, I'm sorry. Uh, we asked this. We asked the stuff that we wanted to know. Never apologize for doing your best, Joshua. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. And and honestly, I mean, we could have had a four hour podcast yeah. for sure, but yeah. only Joe Rogan can have people listen for four hours at a time. We're we're not there yet, <laughs> so we <laughs> we trimmed it down for you guys. But without further ado, this is Doctor Basu. You guys enjoy. Interesting note, uh, we were going around, to, around today in the office, and we were handing out T-shirts from our podcast, much like the one we gave you, and you were gracious enough to come here. And uh, the people in our finance department, they said, hey, we heard that Honorbon Basu was coming on your podcast. I said, yeah, you, you know him? And they go, know him? He's the best. And they, they started ranting and raving. So apparently you're a big deal. We appreciate you coming on here. Oh, thank you. That's very nice to hear. I, I feel great encouragement from that. So that's wonderful. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, they were great. They were like, oh, we saw him at this conference. And uh, we saw this thing he did. And he did this for Maryland. He did this for the schools. He's, he's a sage policy, right? We're like, yeah, he that's, sure is. That's and right. We're going to bother him with uh, concrete questions. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Yes, go ahead. Knock right, it out. I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to this. Thank you. Uh, thank you, sir. All right. So the number one thing we see when we're going to all these construction sites, whether it's uh, permanent sites where people have had concrete plants for 50 years or whether they're pop-up sites where they're building Amazons and Walmarts, the number one thing is people can't find workers. What is going on that we've got millions of unfilled jobs but the unemployment rate is the lowest it's ever been. So wh where's the disconnect? What's going on there? Well, that's, that, that's actually consistent, right? So we have 10.9 million available unfilled jobs in this country. Uh, approximately 400,000 of, uh, 400, of those relate to construction. The unemployment rate is 4%. So one of the things that we see, and we saw that in the most recent uh, data regarding initial unemployment claims, is that businesses, enterprises, are clinging to their workers. It's not because their workers are performing brilliantly, necessarily. It's because there's just no workers out there to hire in many cases. So we have this uh, dearth of unemployed Americans. So I'll give an example. In December, we only had about 58 unemployed Americans for every 100 job openings. So human capital is scarce. It is precious. Uh, and construction has particular challenges in terms of filling available jobs because A, a lot of our best construction workers are baby boomers, but baby boomers retired en masse during the early stages of the pandemic for a variety of reasons. And second, uh, a lot of the kids have grown up in this environment of high stakes testing, constant assessment to get them ready for college. 
and therefore they have not been exposed to things like shop class, the opportunities to enter the middle class via the skilled trades. They don't know that there is an opportunity to make six figures as a welder, that there's jobs in carpentry that are very interesting and very creative, that there are jobs in, of course, roofing and uh, laying drywall and painting and all these kinds of things. Maybe they know that they exist, but they don't know how to access those jobs or, or if they should be interested in those jobs. So all kinds of issues there. And of course, the industry has not done a great job recruiting women over time. So that's another factor explaining why we have these structural and cyclical labor shortages. No, it's interesting. You touched on so many things that we've talked about on this podcast and our other episodes, uh, the women in the workforce, talking about what it used to be, what it is now. It's actually grown quite a bit and uh, has a long way to go. Um, I think only 13% of the industry is women, but it's up from, it was 9% and is now 13%. So it's heading in the right direction. And that begins with the recruitment um, at the college level. Same way with the trades. If kids knew that there was an option in the trades, then they might look for that rather than just getting buried in SAT scores. But I want to hit on another point you made where you said that the baby boomers were retiring en masse, and that took a lot of our skilled workers out of the construction site. But you're also predicting that more people will jump back into their labor force. Does that include some of these baby boomers that got out and they're thinking, you know what, let me get back in, and that will be part of your prediction there where you're saying that participation rates are going to go back over 62%. Yeah, right. So the labor force participation rate now is 62.2%. I would think by the end of this year, it'll be up to 62.6%. And we have seen some increase in labor force participation recently among Americans over the age of 55. So that implies that some of these Americans who retired or left the labor force for other reasons. So it might have been because their kids were learning at home. It could be for all kinds of reasons, right? But uh, there is some evidence that those folks are coming back. Now, it's not clear that they're coming back to construction, by the way. Because construction often is very physically demanding. So it might be that they're simply coming back to drive Uber and Lyft. We don't know. Um, but uh, but I, I think some people will return, including some construction workers, but not enough to deal with the structural shortfalls the industry faces now and going ahead or going forward. From a broad perspective, even the layman like us, we can track the unemployment rate. And we have a general sense of what is good and what is bad when it comes to the number of unemployment rate. But we have no idea how that's calculated. Could you inform us and our listeners, how is the unemployment rate calculated and why is that the benchmark that we're all looking at? That is the benchmark. I mean, I think that more than any other figure that measures U.S. economic performance, the unemployment rate gets uh, the most attention. The unemployment rate currently in America, 4.0%. So it's computed thusly. The numerator of the unemployment rate computation is the number of unemployed workers. Now, here's the thing. To be unemployed, one has to be actively looking for work. So it's not enough that somebody's simply sitting around on a couch. Uh, they're not necessarily considered unemployed unless they're actively looking for work. If they're not looking for work, they're not considered unemployed. The denominator is the number of employed people in the economy plus the number of unemployed people in the economy. So basically, it's unemployment up above the numerator, the number of unemployed, divided by the size of the labor force. Because in part of the labor force, you have to be, either be working or looking for work. That's your unemployment rate computation. Now, there's some other unemployment rate computations beyond the one that you typically see, which is known as U3. In fact, the Bureau of Labor Statistics monitors six measures of unemployment, U1 through U6. U6 gets a lot of attention because it includes 
uh, other, other people who are underemployed and, um, and may, uh, discouraged workers as well. People who say, if you ask them, I want to have a job, but I'm so frustrated in my search that I just gave up. Um, uh, so anyway, the, the U6 unemployment rate has been falling, the U3 unemployment rate has been falling, and right now the labor market is really quite tight, which is consistent with these very rapid wage increases we're seeing economy-wide. Yeah, we see that too, especially in construction. The skilled positions, I mean, through the roof, even lower skilled positions also going through the roof. But we talk about these different measures of unemployment rate, and just as you said, they're all going down. I mean, you can Google the chart. Even we can do that. You can see it just down, 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 down from the peak of when we artificially shut down our economy to now. It was just been a steady stream of going down, 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 talking about that unemployment rate. But when I go back and uh, look at the jobs reports, it's been a roller coaster. Even though the rate's been pretty steady, the report's a roller coaster. So March of last year, yay, added 900,000. April, mm, labor shortages are real. June, job growth falls short. Even back in May of last year, construction industry lost jobs. July, gold medal for job growth, another 940,000 jobs. September, Mm, disappointment. October, great report. It's been <laughs> it's been literally back and forth almost every single month. And by the way, uh, those headlines were from Dr. Basu's Substack. Please subscribe to his <laughs> wonderful blog. <laughs> Links in the description. <laughs> yeah, we'll link to it. But those reports have been a roller coaster. And so, w- what is it? Why is why is it that those reports are? Uh, seemingly disconnected from what looks like a pretty smooth uh, drop in the unemployment rate? Well, all kinds of factors here. One of them, this is based on survey data. So surveys notoriously generate some degree of volatility from month to month. There are also seasonal adjustments uh, that the Bureau of Labor Statistics uh, imposes upon the data. So if, if we want to compare one month of employment to another, you know, we have these seasonal adjustments. So for instance, if I said to you, well, we lost jobs in January compared to December, Well, of course we did. All those retail jobs that we had in December, they went away in January. So what we do is, or the BLS does, is that it imposes these seasonal adjustments so we can compare January, a normal January, to a normal December, that kind of thing. But the biggest factor probably is Delta and Omicron. So, you know, we had uh, this uh, economy moving forward pretty aggressively during the middle part of 2021. And then Delta hits in July, August, that time frame, interrupts that economic progress. And then, of course, Omicron hits the economy in December and January, of course. But in January, despite Omicron, the nation still managed to add 467,000 jobs above the consensus expectation. So it has been a roller coaster. But long story short, we've added a lot of jobs. Uh, We haven't seen as much growth in the labor force. The labor force is still smaller than it was pre-pandemic. And so at the end of the day, you're left with a 4% rate of unemployment and rapidly rising wages. And every contractor I've spoken to says their number one challenge is finding skilled workers. Yeah, us too. We see it every single day. There's not a day that goes by that we don't see it. But you mentioned that like the Omicron, or I'm sorry, Delta variant, uh, really threw a wrench in some of this stuff. Can you explain to us how the variant came through and messed things up? Because you see that in the headlines. But... Uh, for us who are working every single day, it it never seemed on construction sites that it ever got any better or worse because of a variant. So could you talk to, talk us through uh, how you're coming to that consistency? Yeah, so um, construction, of course, uh, during the early stages of the pandemic was one of the more stable segments of the economy because construction was generally deemed to be an essential industry. And over the course of the pandemic, contractors 
have become better and better at having their workers work and stay safe, either by distancing workers or providing them with uh, special masks or whatever it happens to be. You know, contractors have become used to operating in the midst of a pandemic. And so when Delta hit, you would have expected less disruption on construction job sites than other parts of the economy. And construction workers have just become accustomed, I think, to working through the pandemic as well. So I think you know, that's what you see, that the construction data have been you know, reasonably smooth, but we've seen these really choppy overall economic reports uh, regarding the labor force uh, dynamics and so, or labor market dynamics. So, I mean, that's the explanation, I think, but it certainly doesn't help that we have a lot of Americans who are scared of both infection and vaccination. And what happens is when you have a wave like Delta or Omicron, those people just withdraw from the economy. They quit their jobs. They want to stay at home. They want to work from home, whatever it happens to be. And so, you know, that's going to create some volatility in the data. No, it's interesting. I never heard it put that way. They've got the extreme on both ends. And when the surges hit, both sides actually recoil. And that's how you get such big uh, movements like this. Well, one of the biggest complexities that I always draw my mind to when I hear economists talking about people just withdrawing themselves from the workforce, the first question that pops into my mind is how? How can you do that? Well, I would say the majority of people that do not have that much in a savings account to where they can they can float their lifestyle for long periods of time. Within the, you know, the economy in general, is there a long-term effect or a short-term effect or both from people just withdrawing from from the workforce and from what I can just theorize acquiring a large amount of debt? Well, they might incur, uh, incur debt, but they might also just cut back on spending. So we see this across the world, by the way. Right now, for instance, we have these high home heating costs in the Northern Hemisphere. So you're seeing families in the United Kingdom cut back on uh, you know, heat. They're going to cheaper grocery stores. They are abandoning vacation plans. I mean, so one of the things that people do and can do when they stop working for whatever reason is they cut back on their expenditures. We've seen that. And sometimes, there's more at stake than money. I've spoken to many an Uber driver or Lyft driver as they take me from airport to, to hotel and back and forth and so on and so forth to tell me that the reason they left the labor force or stopped driving Uber or Lyft for a time is because they live with their grandparents and they couldn't afford to have their grandparents get sick or their grandparents ride in the same car that they drive in support of li- the Lyft application. And so they, they couldn't have passengers come into those same cars that their parents or grandparents were using, those kinds of things. So there's all kinds of responses out there. I will say this, that in 2021, and I think this gets to your question, a lot of Americans took on more debt. And that probably has something to do with the fact that many Americans were out of the labor force for meaningful parts of last year. It's interesting, if you look at the 2020 data, Americans paid off more debt than ever before. And then in 2021, they went right back (laughs) to where they were. But, you know, I I wonder with inflation on a broad scale, you know, Josh says, hey, there's people who don't have money set back. I I remember reading statistics that like 80% of Americans are, uh, if not paycheck to paycheck, if they had a $500 emergency come up, uh, they would have to go into debt. They would have to pull out the credit card to cover it. So when you're talking about, you know, thin margins for the average family like that and prices are going up inflation is going up and you can tell us what the you know the calculated figure is but i know my grocery bills are 15 percent higher now than they were a year ago so if you're on a, a budget 
I mean, a real budget, and you don't have room for air, and your groceries are 50% higher, your gas is higher. I mean, it just seems like you're really destabilizing things. How do you see it as an economist, Dr. Basu? Well, there's a reason that Americans are so unhappy, right? If you look at the University of Michigan's Index of Consumer Sentiment, it's basically at a pandemic low. So though the economy has come back in large measure from the early stages of the pandemic, Americans are still very concerned uh, and inflation is the number one factor at work here. And that's one of the reasons, again, I suggest uh, to you that more Americans will come back to the workforce in 2022. They have to. It's not because they want to. We call it work for a reason. It's because they have to pay bills. Uh, and uh, the stimulus checks are increasingly in the rearview mirror. So, you know, that's what I see. So, you know, the consumer price index is up 7.5% over the past year. Food and energy prices are up more than that. Uh, and so... At the end of the day, um, many Americans are struggling. And you're right, you know, reports have come out, you know, pre-pandemic, for instance, indicating that, you know, if the typical American family faced a $400 unexpected bill, let's say, you know, they broke a windshield or their refrigerator went uh, belly up, whatever it happened to be, that, like you say, they'd have to borrow from friends, go into debt, or do something else because they didn't have the cash on hand. So you're right, people live paycheck to paycheck, and, uh, and you know, that's one of the reasons I think people will pursue more paychecks this year. But, but if the inflation is that high, there's no single factor to that. It's got to be a multi-factor thing. So a lot of us are looking to answers from those in the public sector that can craft policy, that can maybe mitigate some of this. How would you advise uh, a federal administration or even a state-level administration? What would, what would your advice be to, to sort of slow this thing down, slow this inflation down, and you know, help people out? Well, the first people I advise, of course, uh, not that they're asking for my advice, is the Federal Reserve Bank of the United States, you know, the people who create our money supply. So uh, money supply growth during the pandemic has been fast and furious. Uh, and, you know, basic economic equations you know, explain that when you increase money supply, there's a good chance that you're going to stimulate inflation. That's exactly what's happened. One of the things that the Federal Reserve is doing, of course, is they're getting ready and have been tightening monetary policy. So it depends on which economist you ask, but economists expect four to seven rate increases this year by the Federal Reserve. And that's in response to this elevated non-transitory inflation that we have been experiencing. Now, with respect to federal policymakers, slow down your spending. Right. Because what, what is inflation? It's too much money chasing too few goods, too much money chasing too few goods. So if the federal government continues to put money into the economy like this, then that creates even more demand for goods and services. And that's inflationary. Uh, and so I think many economists um, were actually pleased that Build Back Better is not happening right now. It's not that we don't like the idea of supporting families with kids and those kinds of things. Of course we do. But to put more federal dollars at work um, in an inflationary economy would, would create even more inflation. And already families, many of them are under pressure. So there's a number of things that have uh, happened uh, due to policymaking that have caused these inflationary pressures. And then, of course, we have these supply chain disruptions. Right? We've had these shutdowns. We still have Omicron. I mean, we, Europe has reopened, basically. The United Kingdom has basically reopened. Some states are now getting rid of uh, vaccine mandates now. Uh, and so uh, we, we are headed toward normalcy, it would appear. Uh, and, uh, and, and so we should see less inflation over the course of the year. But that, that's some of the explanations for why we've seen what we've seen. So the Federal Reserve has been in the process of quantitative easing for quite a while. And I'm not sure that everybody understands exactly what that means and how much money was ejected into the U.S., how much was printed 
and then put into a very few select amount of banks and how that process works and how difficult may it be to undo that. Um, could you talk us through what that really means? What if quantitative easing, how much money really got injected? Because there's some scary stats out there that say like, you know, how much percentage of money in circulation now is, you know, 70% of all money ever made or something crazy. Could you talk us through that? What does that really look like? And then how do we, how do they pull back? I mean, these are massive numbers. Yeah. So money is that uh, which is ready to spend. Money is that which is ready to spend. Uh, and so let's say I'm sitting on um, $100,000 in a 10-year treasury note. Right? I've got that in my portfolio, $100,000 in a 10-year treasury note. And I plan to hold that bond until maturity, which say is in seven years. The Federal Reserve comes to me and says, you know what we're going to do? We're going to buy that bond from you right now. Here's $100,000 in cash. And we're going to put the bond on our balance sheet. So the Federal Reserve's balance sheet gets bigger. And now I have $100,000 of cash. Now, what I might do, of course, is I might go back out and just put that $100,000 into another bond. And nothing really has changed that much except for the size of the Federal Reserve's balance sheet. But now I've got $100,000 in cash. I might buy a Camaro <laughs> um, with an eight-cylinder engine, you know, of course. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's convertible naturally in, uh, in, in, in rapid blue. <laughs> Um, and yes, I am looking, right? So I might do that. So all of a sudden, what I've done is I've created liquidity in the economy. Uh, and uh, I've wanted a Camaro since I was 13 years old, but <laughs> I, I, I've added liquidity into the economy. Uh, and so I've increased the velocity of spending in the economy. And the Federal Reserve was doing that to the tune of $120 billion a month of in injections of liquidity into the economy. And so you've got all this spending power um, coming into the economy. And guess what? Consumer spend. Banks lent, interest rates fell, right? Because when you increase the money supply like that, the first order effect of that is to actually decrease interest rates. So people bought homes, they bought cars, you know, they, they, they financed all kinds of other things. And of course it helped that they were also getting stimulus payments from the federal government, right? You know, not once, not twice, you know, but several times. So the first time was when Donald Trump signed the Coronavirus Aid, Relief and Economic Security uh, Act of 2020. He signed that on March 27th of 2020. Then on December 27th of 2020, he signed another act, the Consolidated Appropriations Act, more stimulus payments to American households. And then just three months later, Joe Biden signs the American Rescue Plan Act uh, of 2021. That was on March 11th. And so all these injections of money, uh, these lower interest rates, of course, that fuels expenditure, which is part of the inflation story. Now what the Federal Reserve is having to do is dial down this liquidity, take some of this back. So they are slowing their quantitative easing program. Uh, it'll be over in just a few weeks. And then they're going to, in fact, even as they're doing that, they're going to start increasing interest rates probably beginning in March. And again, it depends on the economist you ask, but I think it'll be between four and seven times this year they'll raise those short-term rates that they control. My best guess is five times. And so interest rates are going to be meaningfully higher a year from now than they are right now. What type of increase are we, are we talking here? See, so it depends upon the interest rate we're talking about. So if we're talking about the Fed funds rates, I mean, if I'm right that roughly five quarter point increases over the course of the year, then we're at around 1.25% on the Fed funds rate and the discount rate, yeah, a bit more than that. Uh, if we're talking about the 30-year fixed rate mortgage, I would not think that the 30-year fixed rate mortgage rate would rise by quite that much. You know, maybe 50 to 100 basis points, meaning 0.05% or 1%, something in that range. Um, so it depends upon the interest rate we're talking about. But generally speaking, I think you will see higher interest rates across the 
interest rate complex in 2022. And that's because the Federal Reserve is now shifting gear uh, and tightening monetary policy because they're falling behind the curve and they realize that this inflation was not nearly as transitory as they had thought or hoped. Okay, so this quantitative easing is going to be stopping here in a few weeks. And it's been in place for what, more than a dozen years now? Maybe more than a dozen years? They've been injecting money consistently. Uh, and it really ramped up when uh, those acts went through that you mentioned, starting with Trump twice and then Biden's administration once. But that's only half the story. As you mentioned earlier, it's too much money chasing too few goods. Did we hit like a perfect storm where there's more money than ever, like $6 trillion gets injected in, and we also hit one of the greatest supply chain disruptions in history at the exact same time and all of a sudden now you're seeing just this uh, massive amount of inflation is it is there really two sides to this coin and we we need to be going after both of them yeah so a couple of things there first the quantitative easing is separate from the trump and biden packages it's by the federal reserve bank of the united states but it has happened uh coincidentally with those federal government stimuli so there's that so yes that's one side of the equation, right? More money supply, more money to spend in household pockets because money has been directly injected into households. So you get too much money chasing too few goods because at the same time, we've had too few goods. And that again gets back to the supply chain challenges coming out of China, Malaysia, Japan, elsewhere. So for instance, not enough computer chips. So not enough cars being produced and therefore not enough new cars on the lots. And therefore, what have people been doing as the economy has reopened and they need a car? They've been going to used cars. Well, that has driven up the price of used cars. So uh, you know, all kinds of things happening there. And yes, it takes sort of both sides. So demand and supply to try to diminish or mitigate these inflationary pressures, which is exactly what I think is going to happen in 2022. Not immediately. You'll still see hot inflation for the first few months of the year, but I think gradually over the course of the year, you will see less and less inflation as the global economy normalizes, as some of these supply chain disruptions evaporate, and as demand is not quite as strong in the context of no more stimulus uh, and higher interest rates. Yeah, I saw that in your uh, 2022 prediction. That's exactly how you predicted, so I appreciate you telling us. Where, what goes into that thought and what makes you think that? But there are people who are concerned now that the money they've got stashed away in their savings account um, just isn't worth what it was. The buying power is greatly reduced. Is there anything they should be looking to do with that to maximize that cash on hand? Or do they just need to wait on things to simmer down and cool off? Or Because th things are never really going to reverse, right? Or will they? Will prices really come down substantially? What are you thinking? Well, I think inflation will come down substantially. In fact, things will reverse. They always do. So I'll give you an example. Back in 2008, as we're marching toward the global financial crisis, oil prices that year hit $147 a barrel in North America, 147. Um, and people said, oh my goodness, this is peak oil. We're running out of oil. These oil prices are going to keep rising. There are uh, some prominent people saying that oil would rise to $250 a barrel. Within a few months, it was $26 a barrel. The pendulum swings. That's one thing we know. So when inflation is high, people assume inflation is going to stay high. It never does. It comes down. Hold on. The oil, though, wasn't that because of public policy? Didn't the Obama administration ban fracking or something? And that disrupted all of that massively? No, this is 2008. Okay, I'm thinking 2014, right? so, I think, maybe. Yeah, George Bush is still president. 
Uh, and what's happening is that you have uh, investment banks like Bear Stearns are really running into financial trouble. Ultimately, Bear Stearns is acquired by J.P. Morgan, but another bank on Wall Street, the fourth largest investment bank on Wall Street at that time was Lehman Brothers. And Lehman Brothers is heading into a very bad place. Now, uh, you know, and so as we're marching toward that period, people start shifting out of paper assets, stocks and bonds, and moving into commodities, harder assets like oil. So oil prices take off in response to that investment momentum. But when Lehman Brothers falters on September 15th of 2008, the global economy collapses, and so too does the demand for oil. And so oil prices go from $147 a barrel to $26 a barrel. Now, it is true uh, that policy matters. And I think one of the things that I'm most surprised about right now uh, is that American oil production is not ramped up more quickly in the face of oil prices that have been in the low 90s recently, low 90s uh, in terms of a price of a barrel of oil. So in late 2018, for instance, our rig count in this country was over a thousand. So we had, you know, over a thousand rigs drilling for oil. Last I checked, it was 601, despite these elevated oil prices. Is it because of regulation? Is it because uh, there's a, a, a lack of an ability to augment uh, pipeline capacity because of regulation? Uh, you know, is it just because we want to import more oil? I don't know. But I am frustrated that uh, we aren't producing more of our own supply because, you know, I drive a Mustang right now um, and, it, and she needs oil, right? And I'd rather buy that oil from an American producer than someone in Qatar. Not, nothing against people from Qatar, but they're not Americans. And so um, in any case, that's one of the things I expect to see is a, a higher rig count in America at some point going forward as oil companies start to respond more aggressively to these elevated oil prices. But th uh, my point is simply this, lots of factors shape the price of oil, but the pendulum has a tendency to swing back and forth. We'll have to see who has worse gas mileage, my F-250 or uh, your Mustang. We'll have to compare notes after this podcast. <laughs> I think by EPA rating, my Mustang looks better, but the way I drive her, I'm undoubtedly... Oh, boy. <laughs> undoubtedly. Best guess we've ever had. Because <laughs> I am, yeah, I am uh, pedal to the metal constantly. And I want my neighbors to know when I come and, and go from the house. I want them to, and they do. They know. They know. Oh, boss is going to work. They know. <laughs> yeah, my neighbors, my neighbors know when I'm there, too, because there's no on-street parking left because the giant truck takes up two spaces. <laughs> <laughs> right. <yeah>. Perfect. One <laughs> uh, of the other massive you know, things that we saw inflate, the values just went through the roof, or at least what people were willing to pay for them went through the roof were houses. So you touched on it earlier. And I'm, I was wondering how much is going on behind the scenes with whether it's the Fed or these massive banks or massive companies that what are, are they doing things to the housing market? And I, I want to get into a specific example, uh, but are the things they're doing to the housing market that are really causing these rates to go so high during the pandemic era? Uh, one of the things that I was clued into, someone sent me a Wall Street Journal article that was back in November of 2021. Uh, it was the report on Zillow and how their home buying feature, that whole division, they shuttered the whole thing. I was like, well, why did they shutter the whole thing? Well, they were using an algorithm, an, uh, an AI-based algorithm that was scanning their website of homes for sale and making offers to people. And when people weren't taking their offers right away, they jacked the price up. They were thinking, oh, well, we just need to get them a little higher and a little, and a little higher. Turns out they were overpaying by 4 almost 5%. And then when they went to try and flip those houses, 
they were actually losing about 7% on what their investment was. But as they kept paying more and more and more and more, people who were really almost gatekeepers to the market in a lot of way for us low-end consumers, they were the ones, were they, were they artificially pushing the market up? And you hear about other investment companies that are coming in buying hard assets, in this case, not oil, in this case, uh, real estate. Are there things at play uh, that we're just not seeing that contributed just home prices are out of control? They are out of control in some sense. But look, uh, many people will say, based on the home price increases that we've seen during the pandemic, that this is a straight up bubble, that this is 03, 04, 05 all over again. It is not. It is not that. Uh, and I don't know that it's really external forces at work here. I think it's just the laws of supply and demand for the most part, with some exception that I can get into. But back in 03, 04, and 05, we were building a ton of new housing units, single family units. And we had, during that period, artificially stimulated demand for home ownership through poor lending standards. That was your subprime mortgage, your no document loan, so on and so forth. And then we were supplying to that elevated artificial demand. And so that house of cards had to tumble, and it does, starting in 2006. Um, and then it takes us into recession 2007 through 2009, and we have the foreclosure crisis that lingers thereafter. This time is different. You go neighborhood by neighborhood, there's, there are very few homes available for sale. Very few. And often the asking price these days is the floor. So when, you know, when I started interacting with the housing market, when a seller offered a price, you would go down from that price. You'd say, well, you want 199000 I'll give you 190 Something like that. Now, if a house is selling for 199000 which very few are, by the way, especially in Maryland, but um, <laughs> if, if somebody's offering 199000 that's the auction begins at that point. Because somebody is going to say, well, I'll pay you 210 And somebody else says, well, I'll, I'll pay you 220 right? And then somebody has in their contract that says, whatever the highest bid is, I'll match that price and add 5000 to that. So now it's 225 So that's where we are right now. But I think a lot of it is the laws of supply and demand. Now, it's true that there has been some outside intervention. So private equity is getting involved in the housing market. Um, we saw this actually during the Great Recession, too. Banks buying up real estate, for instance. But we see that now where uh, private equity is getting in, buying homes up and renting them out. That truncates supply in terms of people wanting to buy to live in those homes as a homeowner. Uh, we are seeing that kind of activity, but you don't see so much of that in the northern United States. I mean, uh, people are not speculating on the housing market in Baltimore. Um, you know, that's not where private equity is coming or Philadelphia. This is the stuff you might see in a South Carolina, a Nashville, Tennessee, an Atlanta, Georgia, uh, Miami or Tampa, Florida. So I think by and large, it's supply and demand and we need to see more houses built. And, and that's where concrete comes in because concrete product prices are up 8.5% over the past year. And many prices, you look at gypsum, uh, paint, uh, glass, uh, you know, many other inputs, uh, asphalt shingles that go into the cost of delivering a new house have gone up significantly, not to mention labor. And so what's happening is that a lot of home builders have pulled permits, but they haven't increased their housing starts a lot because these high costs of construction service delivery are causing them to be unable to deliver at price points that would be suitable for their would-be clientele, their would-be purchasers. And so at the end of the day, we still have too few units under construction, too few units available for sale. And that, of course, is consistent with elevated price. Well, there were reports, massive reports, a lot of people that we knew that they were building houses during this 2020 to 2021 and then on through that period. And 
their builders were having to come back to them and say, hey, I'm sorry, I know we're in the middle of building, but lumber price just went through the roof. So it was 330000 It's now 345000 I'm sorry. And they would just show the invoice. They're like, I don't know what to tell you. I'm, <laughs> I'm not going to lose money making this home. So here you go. This is the new price. Do you want to continue? And you've already got the foundation laid. You've got deposits on everything. You are, right. So a rhetorical mean, question at that point. Yeah. Right, right. It just... It is, but there's another answer. So, I mean, do you want us to continue? Yes. And if you don't, I'm going to sue you because I've got a contract to purchase this house for 330000 and you're not going to make me pay 345000 I'm calling my attorney. And so, you know, I mean, all kinds of outcomes possible there. And some homeowners will say, yes, I understand lumber prices have gone up from, you know, $600 per thousand uh, board feet to 1500 which was the case uh, at one point in the pandemic. Um, so there's that. Uh, and I should probably mention softwood lumber first in that list of uh, materials. But in any case, um, yeah, I mean, lots. But, but what that does is, again, it truncates the supply of housing. It limits the supply of housing because, again, the buyer might not be able to afford 345000 or 350000 whatever the price is going to be. And so at the end of the day, the builder might say, look, I, I'm going to wait until materials prices fall, until labor becomes more available before I really start construction on these units. Because often they're building multiple houses at a given time because I want to get to a certain price point and I can't get there right now. Yeah, absolutely. Because if he eats that, you know, these are small businesses. They're not running on a lot of times. They're not running on massive margins. I mean, really, the construction industry as a whole doesn't run on very big margins. Maybe not as bad as food service industry but still typically not great margins. So I go through the towns that I live in and the towns between where I live in this office, I travel through them quite a bit. And the amount of stores that just aren't there anymore, the signs are taken down, they're just closed because they were small businesses that just couldn't survive the shutdown. It was just too hard on them. What are the real numbers? What do you see as an economist when it comes to how many small businesses didn't make it? And do you have a number specific to the construction industry? You know, it's interesting that you asked that because I would have thought that construction firm failure would have been much greater than it was. But it hasn't been as great as people would have thought given the overall dislocation in the economy. Again, construction was deemed to be an essential industry during the worst of the pandemic in much of the country. Not always in New York, New Jersey, California, Pennsylvania, but in much of the country. Con contractors had plentiful backlog coming into the pandemic. So as long as they were able to work through that backlog, they were fine. And then, of course, the demand for construction services as the economy reopened actually went up. The problem has been for contractors to supply side. It's, you talk to most contractors, they'll tell you, I've got healthy backlog. Many will say, I've got more work than I know what to do with. My problem is I can't find the workers to get the work done. I can't find the workers who are sufficiently skilled so that I can be on time and on budget. That's the issue here. Uh, and, and also, to the extent that there was financial weakness among construction firms, one of the things that we saw during this period was a lot of merger and acquisition activity. So we saw a lot of smaller construction firms acquired by larger construction firms. Private equity played a role in that, by the way, by starting to roll up firms in certain construction segments uh, to try to create more pricing power in those segments. Uh, and so some construction firms that might have been somewhat weak financially, somewhat threatened by uh, pandemic era dynamics may have simply been purchased before they faltered. And so I think, I think the damage actually uh, is quite limited. And look, one of the reasons that we have so, you know, so much demand for construction workers is that we still have a lot of firms competing for those workers. So all of that's pretty consistent. 
Yeah, I should have said, should have made more clear maybe that um, I've seen a lot of small businesses that faltered. They weren't construction businesses, but I was curious if you knew um, how they fared. Oh, no. I mean, we, look, you can see it. You can see it in mall vacancies. You can see it in the amount of restaurant space that's now available. Uh, we saw a lot of uh, bankruptcies and store closures. So restaurants, retailers, so on and so forth, those were the segments that got hit hardest. The hotel and motel segment was walloped. So one of the things that we've seen is a lot of hotels and motels change hand because the owners, uh, you know, they lost it all. Uh, and they had to sell out. You know, or they couldn't pay their notes, so they're foreclosed on. So yes, lots of small business failure. It tends not to be in construction so much. But yes, it's, it's, uh, and you can see it in how much office space is vacant in this country. And office vacancy, by the way, continues to rise how much commercial space is vacant in this country, and how many hotel rooms uh, you know, are unoccupied. So yeah, I mean, uh, no question. And so one of the reasons that um, you know, the economy has a tendency to come back from downturns, including deep downturns like let's say 08, 09, is entrepreneurship. So yes, a lot of businesses have failed, but one of the things you're seeing right now is a lot of business startups. So you look at any business journal from any city, Baltimore, Washington, Philadelphia, go there, you'll see all of these new restaurants are opening up. That's American entrepreneurship. Some of those same restaurateurs failed during the pandemic. They got shut down. Uh, and now they're coming back and you know, renaming restaurants and taking over space. And you know, that's, that's, that's all to the good. How does that relate to what you said previously about the interest rates, how uh, they are going to begin to increase? And from what we've seen pertaining to the construction industry, it has been uh, easier, more relevant. I'm not sure what term uh, is best to use here, but debt is cheap, relatively speaking. So if you need to borrow to bankroll your next job or if you need to borrow to keep your head above water when you know your previous projects haven't met the margin numbers that they were, uh, uh, I guess, estimated to originally. Which was like 20% of construction firms. Right. We talked about it in a previous podcast, how more and more of these construction firms are having to bankroll the next job rather than using assets and, and profits gained from the previous job and just rolling that into new jobs. They're actually having to dig into their own pocket here. Um, as we move forward into this into this construction industry as we know it now with rising interest rates and low workforce and things of that nature. What's the paradigm shift going to look like here? Oh, there's no question. And, and that's why I've been somewhat surprised that the average American contractor is so upbeat about their prospects. Because I think you're right that, you know, they have been hammered by rising materials prices. So, you know, one of the things that's happening here is that small firms have probably not fared as well as large firms. Because large firms often have greater contractual sophistication. So, you know, we had that previous example of that home builder who was facing higher lumber costs and then had to go back to their buyer and say, hey, I got to charge you more or I just can't move forward with this. But if you're a large home builder, you probably have an army of lawyers. And those army of lawyers probably put in a clause that says, if we see this kind of act of God or materials price inflation, then we have a right to add that as a surcharge to the cost of your home right? That clause may not be in the contract of a smaller home builder, right? A mom and pop. And so the larger home builders can find ways around this. The same thing with escalation related to higher steel prices or higher natural gas price or whatever it happens to be that goes into a construction project. Larger firms are more likely to A, be able to afford that because they've got larger balance sheets and B, to contract around that. I mean, they've got market power. So, you know, large firms are probably fared better than smaller firms, which, by the way, again, is one of the reasons we've seen so much merger and acquisition activity, smaller firms being swallowed up by larger firms. 
But yeah, you're right. It's a risky world out there. And yet when I look at surveys, so one of the things I do, I'm the National Chief Economist for Associate Builders and Contractors. We do a survey of our members, 20,000 members each and every month. And our contractors, on average, expect sales to rise over the next six months, employment to rise over the next six months, and here's the biggie, profit margins to rise over the next six months, which means that even though it's so expensive to deliver construction services, they think the demand for construction services is strong enough that they can pass along those cost increases to project owners, which is really quite remarkable to me. I, I've been somewhat dubious about that expectation, but that is the standing expectation. Is that something they predict uh, can survive long term as far as that demand for higher, higher construction rates because they, they need those goods and services? Is that something that's sustainable in your opinion? Well, I don't, I don't necessarily think so, uh, you know, but, it, it, you know, there is going to be a period going forward now that we see a significant demand for construction services, right? I mean, on, on November 15th of last year, Joe Biden signs the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. So we know that more public work is coming. It may not be in the next few months. It may be later in 2022 or 2023 when those dollars start really hitting the economy. But public construction should pick up during the years ahead. So from the perspective of those kinds of firms that do public construction work, infrastructure work, you know, they're looking at, I think, at some pretty good years going forward. This is a pretty sizable infrastructure package. Now, with respect to private work, yes, we have segments like office construction, hotel construction, shopping center construction that are down. But at the same time, we have more fulfillment centers being built. We have more data centers being built. We have more investments in healthcare and also the industrial slash manufacturing facilities. You know, uh, you know, right now the economy is still recovering. It's still growing. That generally translates into more construction activity. And I think that's what the contractors are looking at on average. It's interesting you say that. And I do have one last follow-up question on this particular topic. And I may be asking you to theorize a little bit too much here. But as the demand either remains constant or, or increases, we always go back to the same issue of your labor force that is going to be driving these projects. Uh, not only is it um, not robust enough, but it's aging. And it's, it's aging rapidly. So. Uh, can you theorize for us and our listeners who are very in tune to this issue, do you seem a paradigm shift to where these contractors are going to change the way they actually do business through new technology or automation? Like that money that's going to be injected from these policies, do you think it's going to go more towards improving and streamlining the way these construction projects are done? Or do you think it can be injected into the labor force and getting people between the ages of 20 and 40, turning them into skilled workers and filling that void in the labor force we have now? Look, both things are going to happen, meaning this, that there is going to be a greater shift toward technology going forward. So we're now 3D printing homes in this country. We've seen a surge in equipment purchases during the course of the pandemic because if contractors and other firms can't find workers, they turn to productivity enhancing equipment to make the workers that they have more productive. They do more with less. So I think you're gonna see that you know, drone technology and driverless vehicles and all these things are coming, not immediately, but eventually, and they will make it easier to deliver a construction project with fewer workers, that's one. But here's the other thing, the other side of it, which is that we're gonna see more people enter the construction trades. I have great hopes for Generation Z, Generation Z is the group associated with the youngest members of the workforce today. The oldest of that uh, generation uh, this year will turn 24 or 25. So many of them are still in school. And as this generation has grown up, one of the principal concerns that they have faced is student debt, the student debt crisis. So the millennials took on a ton of student debt. And this emerging generation does not want to take on as much debt. And that 
that means that they might be more open to pathways to success, to the pathways to the middle class or better, that don't involve college, that might involve apprenticeship programs. And so I think you are going to see an injection of more young people into construction trades. And then, of course, the great wild card here is immigration. I mean, this country has got to get its legal immigration house straight. What is our policy? What is our approach here? Uh, because there's certainly plenty of amazing carpenters outside of this country and also great pipe fitters and roofers and glaziers and electricians uh, and HVAC professionals and so on and so forth, but they're not here. So what does that look like going forward? And it might be that the salvation of the industry ultimately is through stepped up legal immigration, but of course, to the extent that that does not happen, you'll see even faster adoption of emerging technologies. The last guest that we just had, Dr. John Bukowitz, uh, he runs Intelligent Concrete out in Denver, and he bet us money on the podcast how quickly he thinks 3D printing residential homes is going to happen and, and just take over. He's thinking five years is the time frame, and, uh, and I really don't want to give him that dollar that I bet him. <laughs> are you seeing five years? Do you think it'll be 10 years? How quickly are we going to uh, adopt this 3D printing of homes? I think it's more likely to be 10 years than five years. Great. Uh, I can't wait to tell him. Uh, I'm an Occam's razor kind of guy. Simplest explanation is probably the real explanation. And so I'm looking around at all the inflationary things we've been talking about, and I'm like, golly, is there a, a root cause out there for what's going on? And as I look, it seems to me that shipping items from the producer to then where, uh, whether it's a raw material being shipped to where then it's manufactured into something, or the manufacturing, shipping it to the wholesaler, retailer, and the retailer having to send it to the customer. All along those points, the cost to move goods from one point to another are through the roof, absolutely insane and it doesn't matter what mode of transportation or what you're sending the numbers that i'm seeing are absolutely crazy and what you wrote is that you don't believe there are going to be as many ships waiting to offload as we get further into the year and so i want to expound on that i want to say what makes you think that we're going to get that in order that quickly and then secondly can we trace most of these price increases back to the shipping of goods whether it's transnational ocean freight or whether it's just sending things down the road on a flatbed yeah so the global trading system has never produced as much or delivered as much to american consumers as it is right now the problem is, often, when it gets to our shores, that's where the blockage occurs. So, you know, you've seen those ships off the port of Los Angeles or the port of Savannah, Georgia, um, you know, waiting to unload their wares. That's because there are not enough uh, people to handle that cargo. Now, when the cargo gets on the docks, there are not enough truck drivers to drive that cargo away. We have a shortage of 80,000 truck drivers in this country. Then when the, you know, the, the food, let's say, gets to the grocery stores, there's not enough people at the grocery store to stock the shelves. So you see a lot of empty shelves uh, in, in grocery stores and in other retail uh, segments. A lot of that has to do with that final step of having somebody actually stock the shelves who knows where stuff goes. 
And so uh, we, you know, we have these, all these supply chain issues now, as the economy normalizes, as those stimulus packages are increasing in the rearview mirror, as spending growth dissipates at least somewhat because of the lack of new stimulus. Um, it should be the case that we see ships waiting shorter periods uh, you know, outside the boundaries of these ports, that we don't have quite as much of a shortage of truck drivers. And by the way, one thing that also happens during these periods is that we end up paying truck drivers more. I mean, truck drivers are making more money than they were before the pandemic on average. And, and so that induces more people to you know, drive trucks. It also induces more people to ultimately join a construction job site, if, if you're thinking about that. So, so that's the dynamic here. And it, as Omicron fades and as some of these shutdowns go away, I mean, the, the Chinese, you know, China is home to a quarter of global manufacturing. They basically have a zero tolerance policy with respect to COVID. If somebody gets it, they shut down. And, you know, so obviously you're going to have some supply chain issues coming from other parts of the world, but those should moderate and dissipate as the year progresses. And that's why I say some of this goes away. Well, we sure hope so. And as a guy who's looking for the simplest explanation, maybe, as you said, it's people, you know, more people. I just, I get concerned when I see our unemployment rate so low. It's like, well, we need more people. And and I think maybe you hit on something there where if we had our legal immigration system finely tuned and we could just open up that spigot and get and allow people into this country that are willing to work and you know willing to help get this thing back on track I, th- I think we would all welcome those people as americans right to help us run this great country yeah absolutely and I th- also i think you know some pragmatic illegal immigration um policy so look let's make a decision here do we deport or don't we deport because if we don't deport that means people are going to be here and if people are going to be here and yes they're not documented i understand that there's frustration around that i get that a law was broken that's absolutely true but as a practical matter as a practical matter not a political one a practical one if they're going to be here do we want them hiding in the shadows or do they do we want them contributing to the american story whether on the construction job site or elsewhere and paying taxes because they're able to contribute more so we have to make a decision deport or don't deport and then if you don't deport let's let these people live a life and if we don't want them here let's deport but let's make up our minds uh in washington dc about this otherwise we have a lot of unnecessary idleness dr basu that subject alone could be a whole nother podcast for the three of us sitting here <laughs> and that's that would have to be on the uh the new podcast we're thinking about doing add 10 after dark so we can talk about <laughs> things that won't get us fired at work yeah that one will not be produced through my employer <laughs> It's a tough issue. Look, I, I don't know if the number of undocumented is 11 million or 12 million or whatever the number is today. There's no win here, right? There's no right. victory here. Whatever solution you come up with, somebody's going to be deeply upset, right? If you start deporting people, you know, let's say by the hundreds of thousands, there are going to be people who are upset. If, if you don't do that, there are going to be people who are upset. If you create a pathway to citizenship, there are going to be people who are upset. So what do you do? You take a pragmatic approach where everyone is only slightly pissed off. Uh, and you try to figure out, you know, how you know, to best treat these folks, how to be fairest to the American citizenry, um, and how to you know, best forward the American story as we compete with the Chinese and others for global supremacy. Well said, sir. And we couldn't agree more. It's, it is a tough issue. And uh, I do want to get something, um, two things, a little bit more lighthearted. I've got to know, uh, how do you choose your presentation themes? And everyone should know here. First time I ever 
heard you was was uh, I guess November and I saw you speak at a conference and your theme was Harry Potter and I just laughed right when you opened up because who on earth thinks you're going to relate economics to Harry Potter now, I didn't get all the references but the presentation was fantastic and it was hilarious and upcoming everything's going to be 007 James Bond so what goes into that process what's your process for that yeah my presentation this year is entitled no time to buy uh, which is based on, uh, you know, 007, James Bond. Uh, and, and really, it's a reference to the uh, inflation that we're experiencing in the economy right now. Last year was Harry Potter. The year before that was Lord of the Rings. Uh, several years ago, uh, my presentation was entitled Brown Sugar, uh, really uh, as a reference to my own complexion. Uh, I couldn't do it today, as it turns out. It's not sufficiently woke. <laughs> but, uh, but back then, uh, back then, it got a few laughs. So in any case, um, yeah, I... I try to find a subject that fits the topic. So, um, you know, I picked Harry Potter for 2021 because it just felt like we're living in a fantasy world, right? It wasn't real. Nothing seemed real anymore. Uh, you know, walking around with a mask and, you know, staying in place and so on and so forth and waiting for vaccinations and all this. It just, and so Harry Potter made sense, right? This magical fantasy world. I mean, um, I guess, you know, the virus was Voldemort, something like that. And this year, you know, inflation, no time to buy, just made sense. So I don't know what next year is going to bring in terms of a, a theme. Uh, but uh, anyway, that's how I come up with it. Yeah, hopefully, your, hopefully your theme next year is themed on Rudy or some comeback sports movie or something like that. That'd be nice. That would be good. I've got a, I've got a generational problem, right? So that uh, not everything appeals to every generation. So uh, I think I did a one several years ago on 80s movies. Uh, but of course, we've got a whole bunch of Americans now who don't remember 80s movies, right? So um, anyway, uh, we'll, we'll see what I come up with. But it has to be good because every year has to be better than the last. Yeah, well, the last one was great. So anybody that gets a chance, if uh, you got a trade industry presentation where Dr. Bowser is going to be there, I uh, highly encourage you really i'm not just buttering you up because you came on here really was one of the best speakers i've ever seen really was great um okay last question so every guest that we have we ask them the same question what's the craziest thing you've seen on a job site if you can answer that question that's fine but in case you can't the revised question would be in all of your travels what is the craziest thing you've seen or experienced while traveling? Oh, that's, I mean, I, I think the craziest thing that I've ever been a part of is that I successfully vacationed in Cumberland, Maryland. Uh, <laughs> and that is effectively impossible. But I spent, I think, a three-day weekend in Cumberland, Maryland, because that's what my budget allowed for, and we had a great time. We just had a great time. That's a lovely, beautiful city that uh, has a lot to discover. But when I said to people that I was going to spend a three-day weekend in Cumberland, Maryland, they figured I was going to a penitentiary, that I had you know, sort of committed a felony and sort of this was my way to pay back society. No, I went there voluntarily of my own volition, uh, and we had a great time. So anyway, that's the craziest thing I've ever been a part of from a perspective going around this country. How do you feel about that, Josh? I mean, I mean, you know. Western Maryland isn't for everybody, I suppose, <laughs> but I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed it. <laughs> I love Western Maryland, and I, I find, and I, you know, Marylanders are nice, generally speaking, but the people in Western Maryland, I, f I find to be the friendliest that we Marylanders have to offer. Yeah, uh, and yeah. so I really like it out there, and uh, like I say, I, I, I don't think, I, Cumberland does not compete generally as a vacation destination with Paris uh, or uh, Copenhagen. Uh, it falls uh, short of Prague. 
uh, even Orlando. But I, I still have a fondness for that area. So the man who advises, uh, you know, White House administrations and the, the state of Maryland, he says, you know what, Cumberland, that's the place to go. So what, what does a man do or a couple do in Cumberland that attracted you so well? I don't remember what we did, if anything. Um, I, I think we walked around a lot in the hills. We looked at some of the beautiful homes on Washington Street. We stayed at a bed and breakfast. They have a beautiful little downtown that has a brick walk path. Unfortunately, they don't have as many businesses there as you know, one would hope. It's not an affluent community. It's, it's a community that's lost population over time. Used to be home. It used to be a major railroad town. So you see these very large four and five story structures that are just wondrous, but they're not necessarily being fully occupied these days. Nonetheless, for an economist, uh, and his wife, I think we had just a great time breathing in fresh air, meeting very nice people, um, and uh, going to a coffee shop or two, buying some antiques, because they have a lot of antique stores, because, you know, that makes sense, right? Because they were home once to great wealth. Uh, and now that, you know, wealth is sort of dying off. Uh, and, uh, and so you end up with these amazing antique stores with this amazing merchandise from the 19th century. And uh, anyway, that's, that's what we did. And uh, I'd do it again if I could. That's fantastic. That's awesome. Such a unique answer, too. I'd, I'd uh, expect nothing less from you, Dr. Basu. That's Thank you. <laughs> okay. Dr. Basu, we really appreciate your time. We think this is probably going to be our biggest podcast ever. You've answered so many questions. We had questions that uh, we had asked others because we told people that you were coming on here and said, hey, we finally have a chance to talk to somebody that actually knows what they're talking about. Yeah, we theorize a lot on this show. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we do a lot of speculation on here. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, whatever we just read in the local news that day. Uh, so we appreciate you coming on here and answering a lot of those things. Well, it's an absolute privilege. Best of luck to everyone out there, uh, 2022 and beyond. And let's get this thing going again. Absolutely. Well said. Thank you very much. All right, and that's going to do it for this episode of the Add 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast. Thanks for listening along with us, and one final thanks to Dr. Basu for giving his time up for a fantastic interview. We certainly appreciate it, and we hope you guys did as well. Uh, We'll see you on the next one. We'll have another episode coming out here within the month of February sometime. But until then, uh, be sure to check us out on our social media pages, Facebook, Instagram, our YouTube channel. And also be sure to check out uh, Dr. Basu, who has a Substack. Make sure you go find his Substack and uh, subscribe to that as well. Uh, So until next time, y'all be good.